Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to Forgotten Estates. Uh, this is a debate that's part of the Royal Academy's architecture programme. My name is Owen Hopkins and I'm the curator of the architecture programme at the RA and it's my pleasure to be chairing this evening's discussion. From the beginnings and the ruins of the Second World War, Britain's post-war housing estates have long been the focus of intense and at times passionate debate. As we will hear this evening, housing estates were the most visible manifestation and embodiment in many ways of the post-war belief in the common good and in the progress towards a country that was healthier, more affluent and more comfortable for all, irrespective of wealth or class. But to their critics, who began to gain prominence in the 1970s and then with the election of Thatcher in 79, took control of housing policy, post-war housing estates were the failed experiments of left-wing social engineering with their concrete and tower blocks were so alien to their inhabitants that they somehow served to exacerbate the problems of social deprivation they were designed to alleviate. And this characterization is remarkably persistent and still shapes how many people view council estates today, especially if they've never actually lived in one themselves. Conversely, the views and experiences of people who actually live on estates rarely appear in the media. Success and failure when it comes to the debate about post-war housing estates are, of course, relative terms. If we consider success improving the living conditions of millions of people, then post-war housing estates were amongst the most successful public policy initiatives of the 20th century. And in the context of today's housing crisis, then that success appears even greater. And I have a few stats which I think bear this out. In 2011, the number of households renting privately in England, this is, surpassed the number of social renters. And they have decreased slowly but steadily since the early 1980s. In the English Housing Survey of uh, 2013-14, this stat shows that needless to say that the highest weekly housing costs of any category um, were private renting, which was £176 a week. And that was actually nearly double what social renters pay. And with 58% of the 4.4 million private renters in England aged between 25 and 45, it's not hard to see why social housing is of such interest to the young. It's also important to note that social renters were far more likely to agree that their form of tenure was a good way of occupying their home. Uh, and that was 80% compared to 53% of private renters. So... Renting a council house or flat is both cheaper and more liked than renting privately. And with 1.2 million people currently on the housing waiting list and with 260,000 of those in London alone, the need for this type of housing tenure is pretty clear. But despite all of this, Post-war housing estates, as we've seen in the press, have become a target for redevelopment, particularly in London, and many people have been uh, the victims of their estates uh, being put up for demolition. The most notorious example is the Haygate estate, Elephant and Castle. And here, and I've got a few more stats, I'm afraid, but from the 1,200 primarily socially rented homes, they're being replaced by 2,300 flats, so nearly doubling the density on that site. But of these, just 79 will be at a social rent, uh, which is defined as 40% of market rates, with another 212 at 50% and then 300 more at shared ownership. So there's a huge decrease of social rented accommodation on that site. Another important example and the backdrop to this evening's discussion is Robin Hood Gardens in Poplar. If you, and this is what I did when I was doing some research for this, if you Google Robin Hood Gardens, the second autocomplete suggestion after demolition is crime, which I think tells a story about how data state is portrayed in the media and often by politicians. So at Robin Hood Gardens, as we'll hear later on, over 200 decently sized flats uh, in a development which many regard as an architectural masterpiece will shortly be knocked down, despite the valiant efforts of many campaigners to preserve not only a place where people live, but what, 
for many, is a vital bulwark against the forces that are currently transforming London's urban fabric. For those, though, on the other hand, who advocate its demolition, Robin Hood Gardens is the archetypal failed estate, an emblem of the folly and hubris of its architects, uh, a concrete monstrosity. So this evening, what we're going to try to do is get behind the reasons why housing estates have become so totemic for both the political right and left, while not forgetting that though they have become very much an ideological battleground, for many people in this country, a housing estate is simply where they live and the place they called home. And this is what we mean in the title, Forgotten Estates. So the discussion is going to look at the ideas and the ideals that created post-war housing and how and why the status of estates have changed, the role of the media in how they're portrayed and how particular characterizations are disseminated, the question of social versus financial value, the public versus the individual good, and the increasing interest in the post-war era and its architecture. And I think perhaps above all, the nostalgia that many feel for a moment that was concerned above all about the future. I'm going to introduce each of our speakers in turn. We begin on my far right with Kate McIntosh, an architect formerly of London boroughs of Southwark and Lambeth, East Sussex and uh, uh, Hampshire County Councils, and designer of Dawson's Heights in East Dulwich. Kate, over to you. Well, I graduated a long time ago in 1961 from Edinburgh, and uh, I promptly went abroad to Scandinavia. Well, I went to Poland as well, actually. Arriving back in this country in 64, um, worked for about a year with Dennis Lasden on the National Theatre, being quite the most junior member of the team and um, having really no practical experience at all, I decided I'd really better get some mud on my boots or I was going to be totally um, corralled in a theoretical design world. And casting around for where there was pressure on to uh, get things on site quickly, I realised this was the London boroughs. The responsibility for London housing was moved from the LCC to the boroughs in 64. And um, in, uh, th there was this tremendous need still. And uh, arriving back at that time, I was uh, fortunate that the 30 golden years that uh, Owen has mentioned of when there was cross-party consensus that governments had a responsibility to fulfil and cater for the most, the three pressing human needs for shelter, decent health, and decent education. This, this was not uh, con controverted by any party. Um, and, and so... Um, I arrived in Southwark, um, was immediately allocated this absolutely fantastic site, which um, had really unique qualities, um, and got my um, practical experience in spades, uh, spadefuls in a very short space of time. Now, uh, what, even while I was abroad, I was aware of um, two landmark schemes. Uh, one was Park Hill, Sheffield, because um, I was still getting the, the UK mags. And the other was uh, Lillington Garden, Starbon on Dark, in, on Vauxhall Bridge Road. Um, uh, so the, these were primary influences. Um, now... The, the public sector had uh, an inherent attraction for me. Um, my father was, the, um, was an engineer, and he became the head of the direct labour organisation for Scottish Special Housing, which was a, a unique organisation within UK. It was set up in the interwar period to deal with three problems – the appalling state of housing in Scotland, the very poor level of skills, building skills, and the 
need to deal with unemployment, which was even worse in the 30s in Scotland than it was in, in the rest of the UK. Um, the direct labour organisation of SSHA was unique in that um, it uh, tendered competitively and successfully against the commercial sector and finished its jobs on time and within budget. Where am I supposed to point this? It's not working. Oh, perhaps I got it the wrong way around. That's it. Oh, there, there we are. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, I joined Southwark, as I said, in, in 65. In 66, that landmark film, Kathy Come Home, Ken Loach, was broadcast. And I can remember strongly my line manager coming into the office absolutely bristling with... Uh, enthusiasm and um, uh, sense of mission that at last this pressing problem, this huge social need was being brought into everybody's home and he, he said there is going to be a huge house building program coming down the line. Now there, there, were, there, were, there was already one moving of course. Now why did I go to Southwark? Of course you had Lambeth and you had Camden and I knew about both of those. Um, Southwark had a reputation for having developed what was then thought of as a cutting edge type of housing, high density, low rise. So you might think it was a bit ironic that um, I then developed this scheme which is not high density, low rise, it's a mixture of medium density, medium rise and, and and, and low-rise. The reason was the unique qualities of this site. First of all, you've got these absolutely exceptional views, certainly exceptional in suburban South London, where you can see to the docks of London, when the docks were in London, you could probably see to Hampstead Heath on a clear day, and Primrose Hill certainly, to the north, and to the south uh, you can see the North Downs and certainly Crystal Palace. It's one of an arc of hills which rises at a distance of about uh, four miles from the banks of the Thames in South London. You've got um, Streatham Hill, Gypsy Hill, Knights Hill, Tulse Hill, Hearn Hill, Sydenham Hill. Um, uh, so that, that, that was one of the qualities I wanted to exploit to the maximum. Another was... Uh, a major constraint was that the ground conditions were extremely, but extremely unstable. There was constant landslip going on. And the structural engineers that we employed, who were very competent, uh, they recommended that even a single-storey structure to remain stable in this, these conditions would require... 30 metres of pile. Now, that was a driven pile, which means it's banged into the ground, and the uh, district surveyor in those days, as we had, um, he had to go down and inspect the uh, foundation bottoms before it was cast. Not a, not a very uh, um, attractive job. Um, so the other jobs that were going on in Southwark at that time... Uh, before I went there, there was Bonamy Street and North Peckham, where, uh, of course, that terrible murder took place. But I thought they were well-designed schemes. They weren't necessarily well-executed, but they were well-designed. Um, and then we had the second... Um, uh, the, the IB system, industrialised building. Pressure was coming from government in order to... Um, increase uh, throughput to the idea was that uh, industrialised building would uh, um, get them churning off the, uh, uh, the conveyor belt. So then you had Haygate and Aylesbury, which were not schemes I was thankfully involved with. I, I say thankfully because I think they were just too big. They were too big in that it decimated whole areas of the borough and uh, these people were told they could come back and live on this site later, but they knew they were going to 
have to find or be put into alternative accommodation for an enormously long time. So, of course, those that had any get-up-and-go, which were the ones with the skills, went off to the new towns, which were then um, trying to find people to go there. So you're left with the, um, uh, the remnants, and not surprisingly, there were a few social problems to begin with. And I think it's tragic that this community is just about bedded down, and uh, they're going through the whole process again. Uh, except that, of course, now they're not necessarily being offered to go back to the same site. Most of them are going to be shoved off to God knows where. Um, So influences that were around at that time, well, of course, there was Jane Jacobs' Death and Life of American Cities. There was um, the um, Family and Kinship in East London. These were very... Uh, influential books that were published and they were, they were saying um, it's not enough to give people hygienic dwellings with better space standards in doing your slum clearances you're actually erasing a lot of very valuable social um, uh, infrastructure and so my generation of architects, we started to look at how could you give more sense of identity to the individual dwelling within the totality. And um, uh, hence this heavily modelled type of profile that uh, many of us were aiming for. Now, the the development is in the form of uh, two-step ziggurats, as you saw from the first slide. And the fact that they're not, um, they are sort of flipped in relation to one another and they also enclose a central space was to minimise the blocking of sun and view so that um, two-thirds of the dwellings get a distant view in two directions and everybody gets a, a distant view in at least one direction. And um, the... Uh, the staggering of the high points means that um, the, they, the, the shadows cast are across the, the widest part of the, uh, the enclosure. As originally designed, uh, the, they, they step down to relate to the scale of the surrounding properties. That's, that's one of the objectives. And, of course, it's clad in London stock, yellow brick. Um, Originally, the, the high points where the vertical circulation takes place, there was a bridge that linked across to the lowest part, the idea being that the... Um, I'll go back to the previous slide, then you can see that. Uh, the, um, even if you were living in a lower part, if you had some heavy load or a kid in a pushchair or whatever, you wanted to use the lift, you could use the closest approximate lift... Now, of course, um, Thatcher comes to power and her housing advisor is Alice Coleman. And Alice Coleman, um, who's uh, thinking is not particularly original at all, she's taking off from Oscar Newman, Defensible Space, um, was putting forward the idea that uh, the ideal form of housing, of course, was suburban, detached, and if you couldn't actually afford detached, then semi-detached at maximum, not even terraced housing met with her approval. So um, (laughs) connectivity and permeability, which were objectives that we, in my generation, pursued, were totally condemned in her eyes. And uh, hence, uh, when the scheme was made over to Southern Housing Group, they took the bridges out, which uh, uh, I regard as a pity because it helped to define that inner space. I'm sure there were other ways of going about it. Um, Anyway, another of my objectives um, was uh, not to pursue the standard approach to um, housing estates that uh, I knew existed in the LCC because I'd done some work there in my vacation, of um, putting the small families in point blocks and the larger families in 
four-story walk-ups. I wanted to mix the um, dwelling sizes up as much as possible. Uh, so this, this is a diagram which shows how that was achieved. You, you, the, the access ways occur every third floor. And uh, so I've got a, um, a two-bedroom, a one-bedroom, and a three-bedroom dwelling all coming off the same access way. Uh, the idea was that um, families of different sizes have different needs and different demands, and that um, hopefully you would get, by having a more natural mix of family size, people would be able to help each other out and, and neighbourliness would and sociability would build up. I think that's my last slide. Thank you, Kate, very much. Uh, and next we have Mark Crinson, who is Professor of Architectural History at Birkbeck, uh, formerly at the University of Manchester, and he's written extensively about post-war British architecture. Mark. Thank you. I want to start with some broad historical points and then talk about the Smithsons and uh, the estate that you see here, Robin Hood Gardens. We tend to see the 60s in a rather cosmetic way, the, the swinging 60s. So let's, so let's just start by disturbing that just a bit. What was the mid-1960s event that had most influence on the economy of the Docklands in London? Was it the Blitz or was it, in fact containerization. Tilbury Dock was open in 1965, you see on the right there. I would contend that containerization was more important uh, than the Blitz, that, that London had recovered. The, the Docklands had recovered to some extent until, 19, not, until 1965. It was the opening of Tilbury Dock that meant that the old dock parts of the East End uh, were cleared out. This part of London had joined the globalizing post- industrial age. What was the most important cultural event of 1966? Was it the World Cup or was it this film made for BBC, Cathy Come Home, that Kate's already mentioned, and the charity Shelter, which was formed the same year as a result of this? Through the 1960s, we have a continuing crisis in housing that Ken Loach made people strongly aware of in that year. Which influential political party emerged in the late 1960s? The National Front, formed in 1967, which recuperated some of the discredited aspects of the British Union of Fascists. Discredited, of course, because of its, its um, connections to German Nazism. Um, and exploited rising unemployment in the late 1960s, especially in the East End of London. In a sense, the National Front inaugurated a new phase of post-imperial racism. And why was May 1968 important? Was it because of the events in Paris, or was it because of this, the collapse of Ronan Point, barely a mile away from the site that was beginning to be developed, redeveloped to become Robin Hood Gardens? So we come then to the Smithsons, and I think the key question that preoccupied them throughout their career relates to some of those points I've just made, those broad historical points. And that is the question, what is belonging? How do we identify ourselves with place? And that was an insistent concern for them. And it makes their architecture, I think, still relevant in contexts today which are, to some extent, quite similar when we pull away the cosmetic view of the 1960s. And of course, in thinking about the Smithsons, one must also think about Nigel Henderson, who introduced them to the East End and from whom they took many of their ideas about it. Henderson was the photographer flaneur who strolled the East End streets, botanising upon the asphalt, um, and um, who came out of that... Um, with photos that were, in fact, largely unprinted until more recent photographic historians rediscovered him. Um, they were used by the Smithsons, um, and they have a very, this very strong aesthetic um, that's concerned with decay, urban inscriptions, 
palimpsests, the outmoded, details, surfaces, and a kind of a formalism often in their composition. Henderson was very much dealing with the trauma of his own wartime experiences as a coastal command fighter pilot, um, who after the war, in a sense, finds his therapy in um, strolling around and taking photos of these East End streets. His wife, Judith Henderson, had, uh, was part of a project called Know Thy Neighbour, um, Know Your Neighbour, which, um, 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 which meant that she uh, settled with him in, Chisholm, in Chisholmhell Road um, in order to uh, get to know and record the everyday experiences of one of the families that were their neighbours, who, who became their friends, and in fact later moved out with them to Suffolk. Um, so um, these photographs by Henderson are very important to the Smithsons. The way in which children find their meaningful places by inscribing uh, themselves on their surroundings. They're less, in, in a sense, interested in the street as a structured bylaw-type Victorian environment than the street as a kind of arena for human performance and human meaning. Um, and the Smithsons, of course, take this up, um, reproduce Henderson's photos in their own present that they make to Siam in um, Aix-en-Provence in its fourth meeting um, and become part of a kind of internal um, uh, critique of modernism. They never would call themselves anti-modernists. Anti they, they, they would have called themselves um, anti-the-modernist um, establishment of that time embodied by Siam. Oops, oh dear, I've done the thing I probably least meant to do, haven't I? Uh, <laughs> what do I do to get that back? Ah, there we go. Okay. Um, and of course they tried this out in their unbuilt designs for Golden Lane, just north of the, the, the city. Um, these, and produced these beguiling photo montages that show... Uh, a variety of cosmopolitan types cavorting upon what the, the, the Smithsons called streets in the air. Wide, they're, they're not access um, decks. They're meant to have ideally uh, space for two prams to pass. Um, and they're meant to be places that recuperate and um, elevate the life of the East End street up in the air so that East Enders... Um, or people living in Golden Lane, which of course is not quite the um, East End, um, so that they can um, continue their um, street life, as it were, without traffic. 17 years later, um, these would obviously inform the, the designs that the Smithsons made for um, Robin Hood Gardens. Um, and I think just two points are probably need to be made here. One is that uh, we can't re really see that plan very well, but um, the Smithsons did design what they called yard gardens as part of th these flats. They were on the same level as the kitchens. And the other point is that the streets in the air were continuous, so they didn't just kind of begin and end um, in one block. They continued around the blocks, and of course they imagined these Golden Lane uh, blocks being extended across a larger area of the, the city. Now, um, it's useful, I think, to, in getting a sense of what the Smithsons stood for and how they positioned themselves as avant-garde um, to, to watch, and it's on YouTube, so it's easy to watch, to watch the film made in 1970, The Smithsons on Housing directed by the avant-garde novelist B.S. Johnson, whose book, The Unfortunates, has just been republished. The, un the Unfortunates, to give you a taste of it, is, um, uh, is an unbound book that the reader can read in any sequence that he or, he or she wants to read. 
And this image on the right is taken from this film that Johnson made. And it shows the Smithsons in their in the way they present themselves, obviously, entirely differently on one level in terms of dress from the way that Abercrombie, Patrick, Patrick um, Abercrombie and J.H. Forshaw are presenting themselves on the left. They are the authors of the very important 1943 County of London plan and the Greater London plan a year or two later. Um, less the charcoal or pinstripe suits than the metallic top and the glittery tie. I've watched this film quite a lot, and I've watched it without the sound as well, which helps, I think, to understand Johnson uh, as much, um, more than the Smithsons. And there's quite a lot of um, industrial stuff going on in this film. Um, they, Johnson wants to, and the Smithsons wanted to, emphasise the industrial nature of the site. Um, and um, ships floating around in the Thames the docks, cranes, um, uh, uh, traffic, um, and um, the um, difficulty of dealing with this site, and also the fact that this site and its area were changing rapidly. At one point in the film, Alison opens her hand and rattles some shards of china that she holds. She says she's picked them up in, in one of the docks nearby. And that these are, I don't think she uses the, the term just at this point, but she calls them somewhere in the film, remembrances in place. And elsewhere she calls them the as found. The Swissen, as, as most of you probably know, have this jargon that they create themselves and they repeat again and again. But the point is that she's making quite a, a jump from the big elements of the industrial site around to the very small and very particular and saying that you, know, you can take as inspiration for the way you, you design both the big and the very small. Um, at one point in the, the film, um, Peter Smithson speaks of, quote, Corbusian modernism and its clean sun-drenched boxes with fitted carpets inside and vandalism outside. And, he show, and, and this image is shown at that point, and it's obviously an image from one of Le Corbusier's um, urban schemes of the 1920s. Um, but I think Smithson's point is typical of the, of the rather mixed views, rather ambivalent views, I think is the better term, that the Smithsons had of um, modernism in the 1920s at this point. Um, the idea that of sun-drenched boxes was not something that I think the Smithsons wanted from their scheme. In fact, I tend to see their scheme as anti-utopian. Too often we call all welfare states, or welfare state estates, utopian. And I think there's an awful lot going on in the way the Smithsons think of Robin Hood Gardens, which is anti-utopian. They don't want a world in which rooms in the estate apartments, flats in the estate, are cut off from their surroundings. They don't want to see these flats as places of contemplation, regardless, as it were, of society. But it also, that, that statement exposes one of their concerns, vandalism. Um, sorry, I'll come to vandalism in just a moment. I'm talking really about the kind of estates that were built in um, just before this moment, really in the 1950s. And of course, Corbusian modernism could be found in London in um, Roehampton's Alton West estate, shown here. Um, it could be seen um, also to some extent in point blocks that um, Kate has mentioned. And of course, the, the most notorious point block was Cleaver Road's Ronan Point, a mile away, as I said. And this, I think, the Swiss and Sea is belonging to those that idea of the sun-drenched vision. Um, of course, Ronan Point collapsed because, partly because of a gas explosion on the 20th floor and partly because the Danish um, prefabricated system was not intended to be built at this height. Um, and this also makes the point about, in the 1960s, the official consensus that high building was the thing to do um, was eroded, rapidly became 
eroded. And in a sense, Ronan Point was the confirmation of that erosion, of that idea. You are aware from the very start of the Smithsons on housing that they are ambivalent about what they're doing. They say, society at the moment asks architects to build these new homes. This may be really stupid. We may have to rethink the whole thing. It may be that we should only be asked to repair the roofs and the odd bathroom to the old industrial houses and just leave people where they are to smash it up in complete abandon and happiness so that nobody has to worry about it anymore. Now, these are photos that I've taken from a very interesting PhD that was written in the 1980s by John Thurse, um, and they're photographs of vandalism in Robin Hood Gardens Estate, including, you see, on the top right there, um, in one of the um, play spaces that no longer exists at all in the estate now. But what, the, what is very clear from the, this film is that the Smithsons were very worried about vandalism even before the estate had been finished. In fact, vandalism, I think, is one of the big concerns of this period as a whole. How, what, what did it mean to vandalise something that was said to be in collective ownership? Um, so the Smithsons enter, in their, um, enter their task of designing this estate, seeing this area as damaged um, and seeing the the kind of prospect uh, in an ambivalent way. This is not a utopia. It's a, they have a kind of disabused realism about their job. And I think that needs to be emphasised. While at the same time they cling to a kind of poetic understanding of the everyday, which they've got from Nigel Henderson. Here's um, Alison Smithson from the film. Right from the start we began to identify with a site to put down mental roots hooking on to Rose Bay Willow Herb, the children overturning wrecked cars, the smell of curry on the stairs of rejected tenements. There's something both fey about that, yeah, hooking on to Rose Bay, Rose Bay Willow Herb, and um, the children overturning wrecked cars, the kind of monstrous social... Um, uh, the, the spectre or some kind of... Um, monstrous resident who will not ever respect what architects have designed. Um, of course, where a lot of this comes together is in the Smithsons' views on the street, and we can talk a lot about this, about their kind of fascination with um, Bath as a model, the 18th century Bath as a mod model, um, their sense of the car as an existential threat to society, um, which contrasts, of course, very strongly with their interest in Luc Abusier in the 1920s, and indeed, of course, with the futurists' glorification of car travel, the techno-utopias of those heroic modernists of the 1920s and before. Um, and the great concern and care that the Smithsons took in designing to control sound from the traffic, especially traffic in the Blackwall Tunnel and, and the feeder road into, into the tunnel, just to the side of the estate. And also their great care with parking in the estate. Golden Lane had no parking designed for it. The Robin Hood Gardens had what the Smithsons called moats on either side of the two blocks in which cars were parked well away, without dominating the more public spaces of the estate so that those public spaces could be theoretically enjoyed by the residents more. This would be a palisade of housing, the Smithson said, containing a keep within it, which is what they meant by the open area in the middle, with its hillocks. Um, and they were also fascinated by Gray's Inn on the top right there. That's from the Smithsons on uh, housing, and what they called it stress-free zone, um, a green square that they uh, compared with the green area between the two blocks of Robin Hood Gardens. I think the idea of the street was, with framed by terraces was entirely dead to the Smithsons. 
um, the street as a form of active life had to be elevated up into the building. And it's for this reason that I've put this contrast here up. The image on the left is from the photograph facing the frontispiece to the County of London Plan, 1943, that shows a boy, a kind of chorus figure, at the front of the picture, looking back at the viewer. In a sense, he looks forward to the future. London will be repaired. Whereas the, the Henderson image on the right is much more about what children, how children actually make meaning from their already existing environment. Yep, sure, I will draw it to an end. Um, this leads to a, a kind of, you call a new brutalist iconography of people around, particularly children, around Golden Lane Estate. These are images by Sandra Lusada, for instance. Um, and um, this leads, of course, this is the elevation of the street in the air um, gets connected up by the Smithsons with ideas like doorstep philosophy, eddy spaces immediately outside the front door. Here is the estate today. This was just taken uh, uh, last week, actually. But, of course, the problem of these ideas... And, of course, they, you know, one thing we may want to talk about is how these things have changed in time. Um, but one of the problems, of course, is that this kind of street in the air never had the life, never seems to have had, or very rarely seems to have the life that the Smithsons intended for it. Um, because, of course, it was not the street. Because it didn't have traffic. Because it didn't have uh, shops. Because it didn't have another set of houses across the other side of the road from it. So this is not utopia, but it was never intended as such. Thank you very much. Uh, Jesse Brennan is an artist, has worked on a project on Robin Hood Gardens and is the author of Regeneration, Conversations, Drawings, Archives and Photographs from Robin Hood Gardens. Jesse. Thank you, Owen. Owen's asked me to talk about my work at Robin Hood Gardens, so that's what I'll do. I first came to know Robin Hood Gardens well in 2014 when I was invited by the Foundling Museum to make a new artwork for Progress, which is an exhibition of four contemporary responses to William Hogarth's Arake's Progress, and they were the prints from 1735. My work, A Fall of Ordinance and Light, pictured here, takes the form of a series of four graphite drawings responding to Robin Hood Gardens that imagine its planned demolition. Later, between 2014 and 15, I spent time with residents of the estate to, the, to explore the experiences of a lived-in brutalism and the personal impacts of redevelopment. The outcome of this takes the form of a book, and I'd like to share with you some of the voices from Robin Hood Gardens. And I think that the different perspectives are really telling about some of the challenges around the political debates and arguments for either demolition or refurbishment. And they also reveal residents' feelings about whom the regeneration is actually for. The following extracts are from interviews developed out of the process of making doormat drawings, which um, started... Uh, it was kind of a conversation starter, so these pieces that I'll show you shortly are called conversation pieces. Um, and so the first quote comes from Abdul Kalam, who made these photographs, contributed to the book. Abdul grew up and lived on the estate until 2012, when he opted to be decanted from his home with his family to a council flat of his own. He highlights the complex issues around who is actually advocating saving the buildings when he tells me, quote, It's weird, you know, people take so much interest in this estate. I've been on blogs and people from around the world know about the estate, but no one who lives there knows or understands the importance of it. When I was in uni, I did something about brutalist architecture. That's how I found out about Robin Hood Gardens. Suddenly, I was in my uni, and it was like Robin Hood Gardens. I live there. What's going on? It was a weird moment. Shit, okay, this place is quite important. There's a whole book on this movement of architecture, and it's suddenly your block where you live, which is insignificant, which you hate, you do not like, and you're being told by everyone that it's crap. And then this book is actually showing, no, it's amazing. And that's quite strange. And you think, who's right then? 
end quote. When I asked Abdul how he feels about um, the council selling its land to developers, he continues, quote, When boys sit down or when mates sit down, what we say is they are basically driving the poor people out. It, that's what they're doing in the most simple of forms. It's not racism, it's more about wealth. We don't want you here because you don't belong here anymore. If we had a deep conversation, that's what we settle on. That's exactly what's happened, end quote. And here's uh, Wayne Allison, who was, was caretaker of Robin Hood Gardens until very recently, who succinctly calls for government to, quote, give it back to those people it was built for, end quote. And James Hamilton, former tenant of Macro Walk, which is part of the regeneration um, site, when asked by a former tenant if he feels that Robin Hood Gardens has failed, he replies, Quote, I agree from an outside perspective, RHG, Robin Hood Gardens, can be seen as a failure. When I would meet a bird, bring her back, she would always say, what ghetto is this? <laughs> but RHG never failed us, the local government did. Robin Hood will always be a success for me and the other boys, because it gave me that chance to see life outside my own culture and bubble. Living in Robin Hood gave me the tools to teach my son about life from an eyes-open point of view, end quote. And finally, Nicholas Ruddock, resident of Robin Hood Gardens since 1982, tells me, quote, Don't forget, what the outsider sees is a harsh, brutal concrete exterior, now dirty grey, when originally the concrete had a more golden hue or tone as when first cast. However, as occupants, we are looking out, secure in our citadel, overseeing the locality as occupants of a castle might have in the medieval period. I always hoped the council, originally the GLC, stands for Greater London Council, would get the exterior painted white, and this may have altered perspectives, attitudes of outsiders to the monolithic block, which they saw as, as a delinquent among other properties. End quote. So no wonder Robin Hood Gardens elicits such passionate and varied responses from residents, evoked not only by the day-to-day -day experiences of life on the estate, but and that's played by broken lifts, recurring lack of hot water, frequent blackouts. But it's also in how others perceive and represent it, particularly the media. So slab blocks, in my opinion then, and brutalist architecture are not at all in themselves bad, but the management and maintenance offered by the local authority often was. This is not to entirely blame Tower Hat, Hamlet's Council either, where Robin Hood Gardens is situated, which has endured decades of cuts from successive governments. However, in the absence of resistance of privatisation of ha uh, public housing, the council endorses the demolition of Robin Hood Gardens for short-term rewards and undermines its long-term capacity to provide decent low-cost homes for low-income households. So my project traced the material surfaces of Robin Hood Gardens and the deviated histories of its spaces, and it visualises the estate's imminent destruction. The ideological attack on council homes and the actual dismantling of council housing is discussed in homes and workspaces at the level of individual lives. The book attempts to challenge the narrative told by property developers and politicians of the need and the justification for demolition and regeneration. But it's also a painful reminder of the bureaucratic processes and the decades-long neoliberal policies that have brought Robin Hood Gardens to its knees. Today, Robin Hood Gardens may not escape demolition, but there is broad and growing network of resistance to the destruction of social housing estates. Like the spirit of a dormant brutalism, perhaps, there is hope that social housing, through its advocates and activisms, has the potential to rise and detangle itself from the logic of a kind of capitalist profit and simply be a place to live. Thanks. <laughs>Jesse, thank you very much. And finally, we have Paul Watt, who is reader in Urban Studies at Birkbeck and works on housing activism. Paul. Okay, I'm going to start somewhat differently. I'm not really going to talk about the architecture. I'm not going to talk about the estates. In a way, 
the concept of a council estate is epiphenomenal to really the fundamental key aspects of what we're dealing with. The key aspect for council housing for me is that it's a part of the welfare state. In other words, then, what happens is that council housing is a, it's a housing tenure. You can access it. You pay rent to a landlord. And the point is that you, as a citizen, need housing. But you don't have enough money to buy or rent a house in a private market. You then go to the state, and the state says, OK, you're in housing need, and we will then supply this house to you. Now, this idea that in some sense the state is responsible for providing housing is actually a relatively recent idea. It's only really been around in the last century or so. And really, you only find welfare states in certain northern European and North American societies. They're relatively unusual. Many parts of the world, you won't actually find... The idea that the state should somehow take responsibility for housing its citizens is anathema. It doesn't happen. So in other words, then, what we have to do, we have to think about council housing, for me anyway, as part of the way that the welfare state emerged, the way that the welfare state developed. I just want to try and put um, a, few, a statistic on this, which, which I think gives a, some idea of the scale and the importance of council housing in this city. 2011, the 2011 census, it showed that in Birmingham, the population, the, the number of households in Birmingham was 411,000 households. Birmingham's the second biggest city in the UK. Now, this size of Birmingham is actually smaller than the total number of households renting from councils in London. In 2011, there were 440,000 households renting council homes in London. And that's about 14% of the entire population. Now, of course, that very large substantial figure is, of course, far less than the peak, which was 30 years earlier in the 1981 census. At that point, councils, councils in London housed 777,000 households. 31% of the entire city. In inner London, 43% of all, counts, of all London, inner Londoners lived in council housing. Tower Hamlets, 82% of all the residents of Tower Hamlets lived in council housing, so that two-thirds. Now, the point about all these statistics is this, is that council housing, in relationship to the development of London as a city, is not some sort of marginal phenomena, and they're certainly not forgotten as states. They've actually been, council's housing has actually been central, it's been key to the way that this city has developed. And it's developed, and you can, again, you can clearly see this just in relationship to walking around the city. You walk around boroughs like Camden or Islington or Southwark or Lambeth or Tower Hamlets, Everywhere you will see council-built estates. You'll see council housing. Now, this is very, very dissimilar to many other European, certainly North American cities. North American cities, again, if you, even if you take very large uh, cities with very large uh, public housing, the so-called projects, like Chicago. Chicago Housing Authority, at its peak, only had 35,000 units. And most of those were actually cut off and separated behind major expressways. In Paris, the social housing units, the Banier, they're located 20 30, year, 20, 30 miles outside of the city. They are, in that sense, spatially marginal. So it's really not the case that London's council estates are marginal. They're not forgotten. They're actually being key to the way that the, the city's developed over the last century. Well, then you've got to ask yourself, okay, so, you know, what was the kind of the distribution of council housing across the city or across the country. And it's not random. There's no randomness about it. It's very, very clear that you, you know, very few wealthy, you know, you won't find much council housing or council estates in wealthy rural areas. Where you will find lots of council housing is in predominantly industrial urban areas, the large cities. And, that, and there's a politics to this, and that you can't duck this. There's no sort of, um, there's no kind of, uh, you know, although people talk about the post-war consensus, 
you know, there was a, it was never that much of a consensus in, when you drill down at the local level to what was going on between Labour and Tory uh, councils. And it's very, very clear, again, if you look at London, it was in the, it was in the Labour authorities. That's where you have the large concentrations of council housing. The LCC, which was a le- which is, you know, absolutely, uh, in, you know, unheard of, unprecedented period of 32 years of Labour hegemony from 1933 up until 1965. It built thousands and thousands of households in the inner core. Um, and again, if you take, you know, so as I said, if you look at Southwark, 60, you know, two-thirds of all Southwark households back in 1981 were council tenants. Compare that with, say, Barnet. Barnet pretty much always been a Tory authority. Barnet, even at its peak, never got beyond 19, 90% of its stock as council housing. So there's a politics to this. And essentially, again, you can track this through, particularly in the early part of the 20th century. One of the ways that, um, one of the, ways that uh, the Labour Party developed in London, because London, of course, was a bit different than, say, uh, the coalfields areas or uh, uh, steel, uh, say, say uh, you know, heavy industrial cities like Sheffield, because London didn't rely on large industry. London was primarily a working class of small workshops. So Labour had a problem in actually being able to mobilise in that sense. So what they did throughout the first part of the 20th century was that they mobilised on a ward basis precisely around municipal socialism. We will provide you council housing on the rates. We will actually provide this thing. And it was incredibly, you know, electorally successful and it was also politically successful and it also was very much part and part of the way that the Labour Party grew up and developed in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century. So in other words, then, what you have is a whole series of political economic configurations have brought this thing into being. This might be a heretical thing to say, uh, being on a panel with uh, architectural specialists. At the end of the day, architects don't build housing. States build housing. Capital builds housing. That's the key aspect the relationship between states and capital. And what we've clearly seen over the last 30, 40 years is a switch away from the notion that the state should provide council housing on the basis of need towards the idea that essentially private capital should produce housing on the basis of profitability. That's the key shift that's gone on. In relationship to, you know, what's, what's kind of, the, the, the kind of like the, the micropolitics of what's happened over the last 30 years. You know, clearly, you know, Thatcher, you know, as, as was well known, you know, the right to buy, the creation of the property-only democracy, these are kind of like long-term conservative interests. Um, and also in terms of the, 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 the spending on, on council estates in, during that period, during the, the 18 years of conservatism, by, the, by 1997, it's generally estimated that across the country, there was something like £19 billion of repairs needed on estates. Now, what then happens is this, in 1997. This is, a, this is, this is a, clearly, the, the election of Labour in that year was a key moment. Everybody was, you know, lots of people by 1997 were aware that the NHS was struggling. There was generally a common perception the NHS was struggling. But also, council housing was incredibly struggling. I interviewed people at the time. You know, the conditions that people were living in were appalling. In, in Camden, something like in Camden, 95% of council homes didn't meet decent home standards. So what happens then is that Labour comes in in 1997, but they do something different than all other Labour governments. What they do is they cut council housing out of their agenda because they basically make this kind of pact with the electorate. You guys, you like the NHS. You like state-funded education. We're going to maintain that. But you're not too keen on council housing. You might want to buy it, but, you know, it's, a kind of, it's got all these kind of supposedly dystopian attributes to it, the kind of things that my colleagues have talked about. So what we're going to do is we're not going to actually reinvest in this part of the welfare state. 
They did put in the Decent Homes Programme, that was investment in the existing stock, but they put in place an incredibly complicated governance arrangement. They basically said to councils, they didn't allow councils to borrow on their income streams for all kinds of reasons, which you can ask me about, but essentially then New Labour said, right, well, you know, you can, you can improve your stock, the condition of the stock, but we're not going to give you any money. We're going, to, we're going to set targets, but there's now going to be new finance. So what we're going to do is then you can actually then have a stock transfer. You can stock transfer it to a housing association. And the stock transfer then can leave it in the funds. The housing association, sorry, can leave it in the funds. Or you can have a PFI. Or you can have an ALMA, an ALMA management organisation. But they were against direct investment by accounts, by local authorities in the stock. And in their 2000 Green Paper, they actually talk about stock transferring 200,000 homes per year. So, in other words, what's happened is this, is that the political party which created, created this part of the welfare state cut it off at its knees. And, you know, they didn't build anymore. Again, you can see the figures in, in relationship to, to, to this, the country generally. Everybody knows now they didn't build enough social housing. The expectation that housing associations, the so-called third arm of the housing sector, were going to actually provide social housing at the numbers that councils, councils used to provide in the post-war period, it never happened. It was never going to happen either. It was clear. So essentially then what you've got is you're leaving it to the market. Well, you know... The market, as we know, into, again, the market will only provide certain kinds of housing to those people who can pay. It's certainly not going to provide homes for people who are on low incomes. It's not going to happen. Um, so, you know, by the time then, the, you know, and essentially, again, in terms of labour then, they, they carried on the right to buy, okay, so they cut the discounts. They did implement the stock transfer. And the, the, the whole Decent Homes programme was uh, you know, wrapped up in all these kind of like governance complexities. Really what was necessary in 1997 to address that £19 billion deficit was a Marshall Plan. You actually needed some sort of Marshall Plan to really kind of like address the terrible conditions that council tenants were living in rather than the kind of like the long drawn out process that Labour took in place. Now... What happened in London, I'll just talk about, very briefly about London, is that at some point in the late 1990s, the Labour councils, they switched their agenda. They switched from being kind of like new urban left to sort of saying, look, we're deprived areas, we've got all these problems. They suddenly discovered that they got an asset base. In other words, they were sitting on valuable land. And that valuable land, of course, a lot of it is council estates. So what they've been doing then over the last decade or so, and this includes Labour councils as well as Conservative councils, is they've basically been maximising their asset base. That's what they talk about. They talk about this. Uh, but the problem that they've got, and this is the problem that you talk about in relationship to Robin Hood Gardens, is they've actually got existing residents there. So somehow they have to spring them. They've got to get rid of them. And that then is the kind of like the contentious thing which is clearly happening right across the city in relationship to the way that, you know, many residents in many estates, and I've spoken to, you know, many, many residents on different regeneration estates. Yes, there are often things wrong with the estates. Nobody's kind of like saying that there aren't problems in estates. And a lot of that, as my colleagues have said, is down to, you know, insufficient investment, insufficient maintenance. But nevertheless, the idea that London council estates are in any way analogous to the US projects of the 1960s and 70s is laughable. It's simply not the case. And again, if you think about, there's a whole history to the way that urban policy and regeneration has evolved. And many of the ideas have come forward from the US, particularly the Hope 6 program, which was instituted in the mid-1990s. Uh, and that's kind of migrated to the UK. Yes, okay, so what we need to do is knock down monotenure public estates, the projects, and replace them then with uh, multi-tenure uh, housing estates that will then somehow raise the aspirations of the uh, remaining public tenants. The US projects were never the equivalent of London Council estates. The levels of homicide in US projects were never, ever 
the levels of crime that you had on London estates. It was in many ways, it was a false analogy in many kind of ways. Um, my experience of estates and talking to lots of residents is estates are incredibly mundane places. They're just places where people live, get on with their lives, you know, have squabbles with neighbours sometimes. Some people live on big estates, some people live on small estates, some people live in houses, some people live in flats. But, as I said, the key fundamental aspect is this aspect to do with the welfare state. And what we're seeing in relationship to the housing crisis is the way that as this aspect of the welfare state is being cut to bits, so it's having all of these really incredibly negative impacts on London residents. And the spikes in homelessness now across the city, there are something like 50,000 households living in temporary accommodation. 17,000 of those have actually been displaced out of their borough. So what you have is this sort of increasing nomadism around um, the homeless population with all incredibly kind of like negative impacts on people's children, their welfare, etc., etc. And, you know, without... You know, this is a political issue. It's no, it's no wonder that the Conservatives have passed the awful Housing and Planning Bill 2016 because they can do this. Because the party, which should have loved and created and nurtured that part of the welfare state, didn't. So it's, kind of, it's almost like an open goal. It's an open goal for the Conservatives to put in place even worse policies. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.